This week's episode is brought to you by More Seen Unseen Disneyland by Russell Flores. And he's at Disneyland right now. And I only know that because he's posting 1,000 photos an hour on Instagram. Again, that's More Seen Unseen Disneyland by Russell Flores. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And this is our big episode 202. Yay! Because if you, if, you, if you write it backwards, it still says 202. That's right. So you're going to listen to this episode, um, you know, in the, in the correct way forward. But then when you're done, bring it on the computer and then reverse it. And then it's going to be a completely different episode. Basically says like Paul is dead or something like uh-huh. that um animal kingdom is a full day park <laughs> it gives you the secret code to get into the secret lounge in uh, spaceship earth um Ooh. but you need to listen to the entire episode backwards in order to figure out the puzzle to figure out those clues yeah so it's sort of like the plus ultra tomorrowland escape room type stuff yes but much more satisfying of an ending of course or because experience you overall start right here yes or you end right here where we just were oh, or crap. do you oh, gosh Oh, my head hurts now. I'm going to say something backwards right now, and then we're going to go into the history segment. Are you ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. It's time for the Park History. Way, way back in episode 201, we covered Coney Island, located outside of Cincinnati, Ohio. And it was one of the most well-respected amusement parks in the America, uh, in America during the 1950s and the 1960s, and it eventually led to the creation of Kings Island in Mason, Ohio. So why would an incredibly successful amusement park that found its origins almost 100 years earlier decide to create a new park in an era when amusement parks were going away from roller coasters, midways, with games, and uh, venerated cotton candy? Well, as you've heard many times on Communicore Weekly, especially if you listen to the episodes over and over and over again. And backwards. And backwards. Many of the early amusement and trolley parks were often closed due to fires or simply didn't survive past the Great Depression or World War II. And as we mentioned in episode 201, Coney Island did survive the Great Depression and the World War II rationing and never suffered any major fires. But it did suffer four major floods that were unique unique to the amusement park uh, industry, especially because it was situated along the banks of the Ohio River. So in 1964, Coney Island suffered the fourth largest flood in its history, and the current owners, the Wachs, the Wachs family, knew that something needed to be done. Now, it's... It's Wax? Wax? I don't remember. It's Wax. Wax. Ralph Wax, the owner, listened to his son Gary about the possibility of starting a new theme park. And at the time, Ralph was in his 80s and wasn't as interested in starting a new venture. But Gary, who was in his late 20s at the time, and obviously everyone in their late 20s knows everything, (laughs) was very interested in expanding Coney Island. 
So Gary spent a lot of 1964 traveling the world to visit amusement parks to find the best practices, which sounds like someone else we know. Um, he remembers being heavily influenced by the 1964 New York World's Fair and many of the European parks, especially all the fountains and the flora that the parks had. And at the time, Coney Island was landlocked at 155 acres with no way to expand or adapt to the changes in the amusement park industry. In addition to being inspired by the World's Fair, Gary took his father to the brand new Six Flags over Georgia to show him what a modern amusement park looked like and what it could be. In 1968, Gary approached Tav Broadcasting, a major broadcasting company that owned several radio stations and the Hanna-Barbera Cartoon Studio, which was home to the Flintstones, uh, Yogi Bear, the Jetsons, and Scooby-Doo for you uh, kids out there. Or us, <laughs> because I love that stuff. That's true. Um, but at the time that Gary was meeting with executives from Taft, Fess Parker announced his major theme park coming to Boone County, Kentucky, just over the Ohio River from Coney Island. So Charles Meacham, who was the CEO of Taft at the time, met with Gary and loved the idea of the theme park, but knew some more research needed to be done. So Meacham flew to California to meet with Roy Disney, and they had a long lunch and talked about the theme park business. Roy fully supported the idea of a new theme park and offered some advice. And he even mentioned that Coney Island was one of the first parks that the Disneys had visited while researching Disneyland. And the Disneys had actually flown the walks out to Burbank to talk about Disneyland in 1953. It's kind of an interesting side note. Uh, Meckham called many of his banking friends and convinced them to deny Fess Parker's funding, thus stopping the competition altogether. And uh, Taft agreed to buy Coney Island for $6.5 million in 1969. And they also purchased uh, six, uh, 16,000 acres in Warren County uh, to build a new park. A competition was to help to, uh, to name the new park, and King's was chosen based on the family that had originally owned the land before selling it to Taft as a reference to Coney Island. And construction began on June 15, 1970. Coney Island, as we talked about in episode 201, was still kept open despite the cannibalization of many of its flat rides. The Tumblebug, the Scrambler, the Flying Scooters, the Spider, the Dodgem, the Turnpike Cars, the Skyride, and the Rotor, which I've ridden all of those, were all transplanted from Coney Island to Kings Island. Um, they, most of them ended up, though, being in the appropriate named Coney Island section. And that area was going to be a nod to the amusement parks of the early 1900s. And they also talked about moving the Shooting Star roller coaster, but decided to invest in a new coaster which would in turn revolutionize the industry. Now, the park opened on April 29, 1972, and the iconic structure for the park was the one-third scale Eiffel Tower built by, uh, is it Intamin? Yep, oh, yeah, Intamin. Intamin, which was a coaster company for $1.5 million. When the park opened, admission was $6 and was a big change for the area. Most amusement parks, uh, until Six Flags Over Texas, charged a nominal entrance fee and you paid cash for each ride. And this turned out to be a big boon uh, for the new park. One of the biggest attractions at Kings Island was the new roller coaster that opened with the park, the Racer. This was an out-and-back coaster and was designed by the inimitable John C. Allen and built by the Philadelphia Toboggan Company. It was unique in that it was one of the first to have identical tracks that started and then ended next to each other but had different routes. The Racer was one of the coasters that helped kick off the roller coaster revolution and it directly inspired the Rebel Yell at Kings Dominion and the Thunder Road at Carowinds. By the middle of the first season, Kings Island was obviously going to be a hit, with 25,000 to 30,000 daily visitors. It would also become sort of a pop culture phenomenon, 
The Partridge Family filmed there in 1972, and The Brady Bunch filmed an episode in 1973. So, let's kind of just take a look at the park overall. The first area you enter is International Street, which contains the Eiffel Tower, uh, the Royal Fountain, and the Grand Carousel. It was actually designed by uh, Bruce Bushman, who had a major hand in designing Disneyland. And the theme of the area is based on uh, Italy, Germany, Sweden, and Spain. And the buildings are full-size on street level and three-quarter scale on the second level. So on the right-hand side of the park was the happy land of Hanna-Barbera, where I spent a lot of time as a kid. The Enchanted Voyage was a dark ride type small world combo with a very catchy theme song and a very scary snail out front. Uh, there were also some great flat rides for kids, like Winnie Witch's Cauldron, Gulliver's Rub-A-Dub, Scrappy Slides, the Jetsons' Jet Orbiters, Boo Boo's Buggies, and Boo Boo's Baggage Claim, which I found out I didn't remember, but was sort of like a tilt-a-whirl. I was going to say, that one doesn't sound nearly as exciting. I feel like that's no. an airport ride. <laughs> Here, kids, pick up this baggage. <laughs> Yay! Now stand here and wait till the bag shows up, kids. If not, <laughs> fill out this claim form. So... Riverton was next, which was a western theme, and was originally going to be called Frontierland. Uh, it has the Kings Island and Miami Valley Railroad, uh, a narrated excursion with prompts and an old western feel. And there was an arrow development log flume called uh, Kenton's Cove Killbite Canal. But That's such a mouthful. <laughs> yes, which it is. didn't open in 1970, until 1973. And there was also the Kenton Canoes made famous by the Bradys. So heading towards the top of the park, we run into Coney Island, which had many rides transplanted from the former Coney Island, and it also included the Racer. And as I mentioned earlier, it was intended to pay tribute to Coney Island in the amusement parks of the past. It also had many fair-type attractions and games of chance, like skee-ball. Uh, there was also the Ohio Overland Auto Livery on the Coney Island side, and the Le Taxis on the Rivertown side. Basically, they were both uh, old jalopy rides that just had different entrances and sort of crossed around each other. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Heading back towards the front of the park and uh, bounded by International Street is Oktoberfest. Now, Cincinnati has a large German heritage, and this section has always been popular. There was the beer garden, uh, their spinning keggers, the Bavarian <laughs> beetle, the rotor, and one of the sky, sky ride stations. So the very next expansion that we'd see at Kings Island would be the Lion Country Safari in 1974. And the big attraction was the ground-level Lion Country Safari monorail. And uh, we're just going to go quickly take a look now at some of the other highlights from the upcoming years. Uh, in 1977, the Screamin' Demon debuts as one of the first two, uh, one of the first two coasters in the U.S. that were forward and backwards looping coasters. So all it did was went through a loop, back up, and back through again. In 1979, the Beast is unveiled and still holds many world records for wooden roller coasters. And the Bat, uh, by Aerodynamic, arrived in 1981. It was the world's first suspended coaster and my first roller coaster. That's a bit of history yeah, right there for you, George. Yes, it was. So In 1983, King's Entertainment Company bought two-thirds of Taft's interests, which included King's Dominion in Virginia and Carowinds in North and South Carolina. King Cobra opened in 1984 as the world's first stand-up looping coaster. And the back closed due to maintenance issues. Coney Island was renamed Coney Mall and got uh, a few new rides. Uh, the Skylab, the Zephyr, and the Dodgems. So in 1987, the Vortex was opened and held the brief world record of six loops. 
and Kiko, or the King's Entertainment Company, sold the parks to the American Financial Company and also included a 20% stake in Canada's Wonderland, all for $150 million, and this would pose important later. And in 1989, Waterworks, a family water park, was added. In 1992, Paramount bought the parks for $400 million. Viacom then bought Paramount in 1994, and they added the Nickelodeon franchise to all of their parks. Paramount began rebranding uh, re uh, re the parks <laughs> with their movie franchises, which included the Top Gun coaster and the Days of Thunder action theater. In 1996, Outer Limits' Flight of Fear uh, was added, and it's the world's first linear induction coaster. In 1999, Face-Off, uh, a, a Viacom inverted coaster, and the Inaman Gyro Drop Tower drop zone opened. Yep. And Son of Beast would open in 2000 and actually broke five world records for, like, the tallest, longest, fastest, and first and longest looping wooden roller coaster. But sadly, due to several issues and injuries, Son of Beast would close permanently in 2009. So 2010 brought, oh, 2001, sorry, backing up, brought the world's first junior inverted roller coaster with the runaway Reptar. Like I from Rugrats? Rugrats? Yes, there was a whole Rugrats area. That's awesome. Loved it. And in 2001, Kings Island would begin a 14-year streak of winning the Golden Ticket Award for the best kids area in the world. And uh, 2002 brought Tomb Raider the ride and a giant Frisbee ride in 2004. I'm just enthralled that there's a ride for Tomb Raider. That's yes. pretty awesome. Yes, I can't imagine what it is, so... <laughs> um, and the Italian job, a stunt roller coaster, was added in 2004, and all the Paramount po Parks were sold to Cedar Fair Entertainment in 2006 for $1.25 billion. And over the next year, many of the attractions would be renamed, losing all their ties to the Paramount Motion Pictures and Properties. And Firehawk was relocated from Guiga Lake, maybe? Mm -hmm. Sure. That's perfect. Uh, yeah. 2009 brought Diamondback, which was the first hyper coaster to feature a splashdown. And it was also the first Bollinger and Malbord coaster at Kings Island. And coaster lovers will know what that means. Okay, so the uh, Nickelodeon area was renamed Camp Snoopy and rethemed to Peanuts, of course. And they opened the terrifying, absolutely horrible ride, the Windseeker, which is a 301 foot tall spinning ride. No, thank you. What, you don't um, want to do that? No, no, no. I'd this rather do okay haunted me, houses. I, I'll do haunted houses with you. I'm not doing that. Whoa, look at um, you. Yes, 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 yes. And uh, Kings Island today is one of the two most visited regional parks in the United States, only behind Cedar Point, just a few hours away. And it offers 15 roller coasters. From a very humble beginning as a picnic grove to one of the nation's leading amusement parks to one of the nation's leading thrill parks, and that is Kings Island, located just out of Cincinnati, Ohio. And we would love to know what you think about Kings Island or the transition. Did you ever get to visit Coney Island, Coney Island in its early days? We'd love to know what you think about these two theme parks. Call us on the CommuniCore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628. 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd. He's a geek. But we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. Okay, this week's book is An Animator's Gallery, Eric Goldberg Draws the Disney Characters by David A. Bossert. Okay, so Eric Goldberg is probably most well-known for animating the genie from Aladdin and for developing the overall style uh, for the characters in the film. And he's sort of become an animating, uh, animation legend for all the, everything he's done. 
And this is an interesting book. I say that with a little hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's mm-hmm. And it's gonna be a really short review because it's largely just the representation of the work itself. So okay, so the first part of the book, about the first 30 pages, looks uh, at the art that Goldberg has become famous for. Caricatures. Uh, the author, David Bossert, looks at the project and why we're holding this book in our hand. So, the project. When it came time to decorate a new restaurant that was opening up in the Shanghai Disneyland Resort in China, which Jeff and I are both open to visiting if Disney wants us over there. Yeah, wants to send us there. It's yes. fine. Um, but they wanted to recall the feeling of the Hollywood Brown Derby or Sardi's Bistro on Broadway. They wanted to offer caricatures of Disney's animated stars, and they knew there was only one artist that could emulate the style that was needed, Eric Goldberg. And Goldberg had been a lifelong fan of Al Hirschfeld, who was a portrait artist who was very well known for his simple line characters that portrayed the stars of Broadway and Hollywood. And you could often see Hirschfeld's work in the New York Times and sometimes on the cover of The New Yorker. And it was really inspiring to read how Hirschfeld had truly inspired Eric Goldberg and how Goldberg was able to translate the style and still make it feel Disney. Uh, in the case of any type of animation that's used outside the film or the, or the short film, uh, the Walt Disney Animation Studios Special Projects Department takes care of it. So the WDS Special Projects, it is called, handled all the animation for the New World of Color, as well as helping to create the animatronics in the Seven Dwarfs Mine Train at Walt Disney World. So they brought Goldberg on board to work on the project. And uh, when Goldberg agreed, they had a deadline of September 23rd, uh, 2013 and needed... 144 characters to complete, or about two per day. So they barely had two and a half months to do this. Uh, when they were finished, they did a special hanging in the animation building before they were shipped to China. So obviously the artwork is the real draw of the book, and all 144 images are presented. Uh, even if the works were part of a vignette, like there are several with Buzz, Woody, and Jesse that are spanning three different frames, or Orville, Bianca, and Bernard, are they need three frames because of Bernard's wingspan. But my favorite has to be the two with Wreck-It Ralph um, from the film. There's one where Wreck-It Ralph is actually punching up into the bottom of a separate frame for Fix-It Felix. They did a really great job with it. They've got characters from every animated film, including the Pixar films and The Nightmare Before Christmas. And I didn't look at those too much because they were scary. Um, <laughs> and all of the caricatures are breathtaking because they're so simple but they convey the characters wonderfully. Uh, and some of the caricatures take up the entire page, and a few are grouped together. Um, Goldberg's characters are very powerful in their simplicity using just black and white. And this book itself is going to be a treasure for anyone that's interested in animation or Eric Goldberg's work. So I recommend it if you have an interest in those areas. This week's book was an animator's gallery. Eric Goldberg draws the Disney characters. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is located in Walt Disney World's Magic Kingdom, and it reads, The Ralph Kent Collection, Fine Arts and Collectibles, Anaheim, Lake Buena Vista, Tokyo. Now, Ralph Kent started as an artist in Disney's marketing department. And he helped to create the promotional materials for The Jungle Cruise, uh, Walt Disney's Enchanted Tiki Room, and much more. And he was responsible for, desi for designing the first limited edition Mickey Mouse watch. Uh, Ralph also designed souvenirs such as license plates and bumper stickers for Walt Disney World's gigantic grand opening. 
and later he was appointed director of Walt Disney Imagineering East and then as a trainer for the Disney Design Group. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Now, a lot of you know this already, but Walt Disney struggled financially the majority of his early years, but he actually began to find success late into the 1920s. Um, but he, he used the majority of his profits he made to build newer, you know, new stories or create new short films. You know, but he always wanted to buy himself a new car, and he promised he'd get himself one when he had enough money. So after they released Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, and, you know, he made enough money to build a new studio, Walt finally had some left over, and he finally got the car that he wanted. So if you head to the Trolley Car Cafe in Disney's Hollywood Studios, you can actually see the first really nice car Walt <laughs> ever bought for himself. And it's not just a replica, it's actually the restored version of the actual car owned by Walt himself, just hanging out there at Disney's Hollywood Studios. That's pretty darn cool. So that's like one-fifth of your day at that half-day park. <laughs> Spending the time there and... Uh, yeah, but eventually they're going to have Star Wars land and some other land. But until that, like that time, the park is a mess. Okay, okay. Speaking of something that isn't a mess, that is our year of a million or so limited time cadets. <laughs> well done. Thank you, I try. You know, for the past year, almost a full year, we've been given a prize every week. And um, we've still got a few months left, so send us an email at communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, your address, and your birthday for something else special, and we'll enter you into the drawing. I mean, basically, we've got probably less than eight giveaways at this point in time. So, you mean left? Yeah, I'm terrible at the math. Probably like six. Eight, nine? No, it's about eight. Yeah. I think it's eight. We go, we go to the beginning of January. So, yeah. Um, don't forget to go ahead because we've got some great prizes coming up. We're very excited about it. So this week's winner is Liz R. from West Henrietta, New York. Yay. George, and what did they win? I was getting ready to tell okay. you. Okay, I, I thought you, you forgot. It is a copy of More Seen, Unseen Disneyland by our good buddy Russell Flores. Hooray. Very excited. So that way, if you ever get to make it out from New York all the way to Disneyland, you'll get to use the book to... See stuff you yes. didn't see before, yes. but even more of it that's unseen? Because it's part two. Because it's part two, but it's not a sequel. No, no, no. But it's but it's more. You know, I did I did want to compare it to The Empire Strikes Back in my review because it's much darker than the first book. That's true because Russ gets cryogenically frozen at the end. Yeah, and he gets his bacon cut off. Mm -hmm. So the boy loves bacon, especially with every single bacon. meal. So, okay, before this gets any worse, we want to thank you guys so much for watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Please leave us a uh, rating on iTunes or a comment on YouTube. However you listen to the show, we want to hear from you. Gosh, yeah, we need another nine-star rating. Um, email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com to enter the contest or to say hi or say, sup, Corey. You can also like us on the Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imagineerding. He's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And make sure to visit the Communa Store on our website to pick up some great stuff like the musical and plenty of our incredible t-shirts. Also, if you want your official cadet membership card or some Communicore Weekly stickers, send a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly to find out how you, too, can support the greatest online show. 
For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show.